I trust you still have your Bibles open to Ecclesiastes. We'll be uh, finishing up chapter 5 and, uh, and going through a good part of chapter 6. So chapter 5, uh, verse verse 8, all the way through chapter 6, verse 9 is where it will be. I always encourage you to have a copy of God's Word uh, open in front of you. As Ben said, we have these uh, paperback copies that is the version that I preach out of. Those are available to you. Uh, we do encourage you to have, uh, like I said, have a copy of God's Word in your lap. By the way, if uh, you go ahead and if you use that uh, that paperback copy out of our pew, go ahead and take that home with you and consider it a gift uh, to Parkview Baptist Church. If where you're sitting, you don't see one sitting in front of you, don't be embarrassed to reach around to uh, somebody else or, or find one in another pew. Um, we thank God when folks take those home uh, to have as their own copy of God's Word. Well, um, you, you probably remember at least at least bits and pieces of this uh, this story that happened in our area uh, a few a few days before Christmas in 2002. There was a man. He was dressed in all black, like he typically always wore all black, and he had his big cowboy hat on. And he walked into a convenience store in a hurricane, West Virginia. And when he walked in that convenience store, he did what he always did. He ordered up his two bacon biscuits. Actually, he didn't even have to order them up because the, the lady that worked there, she was so familiar with seeing him every day that she had his two bacon biscuits waiting for, uh, waiting for him when he came in. Uh, but this time he did something that he didn't always do. Sometimes he did, but he didn't always do it. But this time he, went ahead and got a Powerball lottery ticket. So he had his two biscuits and a Powerball lottery ticket. The only time that he bothered to buy those lottery tickets was when the lottery got really, really big, and it was really, really big in December of 2002. Matter of fact, it was so big, listen to how the Washington Post described it. It said, on Christmas Day of 2002, on Christmas Day, the lottery ticket buying frenzy peaked at 3.26 p.m., in convenience stores and gas stations across West Virginia, 15 people every second commemorated Jesus' birthday by plunking down $1 for a chance at a different kind of salvation, that Powerball jackpot. Kind of interesting how they viewed what was going on. That night, the winning numbers, you know, they gave the winning numbers on the 11 o'clock news, uh, that night, but uh, the one, uh, Jack Whitaker, the one who had the winning ticket, the one who had walked in and bought those two bacon biscuits, he was in bed. He didn't hear the lottery numbers being read. But the next day, he realized that he had just won the single ticket, the largest single ticket lottery jackpot in the history at the time, $314.9 million. That's nearly a third of a billion dollars. And it was a single ticket. Now, most of us are familiar, or at least have a memory, of Jack Whitaker's lottery-winning story. But let me remind you what happened after he won. And like many of you, that after it came out, after the announcement was made, I watched the press conference as he and watched it on TV as he stood up and holding the big check and 
and all of that and all of the things that he pledged to do with the money that he had won. He pledged to do all kinds of good things with the money. He pledged that it wasn't going to change his life any. That he was going to answer his own phones. He was still going to do all those things. And he was going to give to charity. He promised there on national TV that he was going to build churches. That he promised that he was going to tithe his winnings to local churches. He promised that he was going to give millions to his favorite pastors. He was going to help the poor. So there were all these wonderful things that he was going to do with the money. And I remember how in the days after that, people were just praising Jack Whitaker for, oh, what a gracious heart. And just a few days later on New Year's Eve, Jack Whitaker was seen throwing down $50,000 at a strip club in cross lanes. And that wasn't a one-off deal. It become a, it became a regular deal. It was so much of a regular deal that people were able to case his car in the parking lot. And later on in 2003, he had half a million dollars in cash stolen out of his car in front of that strip club. Booze, strippers, prostitutes, all at the same time that he was building churches. Now, I know of two churches that he built, one in the Hurricane area. It's, it's still there on I-64 between Charleston and Huntington. And he also built a, built a church in Hinton. The worst thing that happened, and he has, he has said in subsequent interviews, he said that the worst thing that happened with as a result of all of the lottery winnings was what happened to the love of his life. The love of his life was the one that called him Papa. It was his teenage granddaughter. With that money, after he won that money, he bought her cars. He, he bought her anything that she wanted. Some stories say that he gave her up to $5,000 a day. And she bought, with that money, she bought whatever she wanted to. She bought clothes, she bought friends, she bought boyfriends, she bought drugs, lots and lots of drugs. Her favorite drug was crack. Now one of those boyfriends that she would continually give money to, he ended up dead, overdosed. Some of them ended up in rehab, some of them ended up in jail. Most of their lives, the circle of friends, the circle of people that were around them, most of them, their lives were ruined. And within two years, just two years of Jack's Powerball win, his beloved granddaughter Brandy was dead, wrapped in a plastic tarp and stuffed behind a rotted out junked van in a field somewhere. The last I heard, I, I don't know, there, it's hard to find any, any news. The last I heard about Jack Whitaker was he was living in a, a house in Bland County that burned to the ground. And after that, he's just living in isolation from what I've heard. That's a heartbreaking story, isn't it? What an absolute heartbreaking story of the destructive power of the love of money. 
But the Bible tells us an even more heartbreaking story about the love of money than the one even about Jack Whitaker. And that's the story of Solomon. As we think about Jack Whitaker's tragic story and as we look at Solomon's tragic story, I want you to remember something and I want you to hear the words that, that I said. See, the Bible never tells us that money is evil. But the Bible clearly tells us that the love of money is evil. Not just a bad habit, it's evil. It's destructive. God warned us about that in 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 10 says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some people have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Jack Whitaker certainly wandered away from the faith and pierced himself with many pangs, didn't he? And so did Solomon. As we looked at last week, as we looked at at his warped understanding of, of the emptiness of the religion that he was pursuing, we saw that he had wandered from the faith, and we see all throughout this book how he had pierced himself with many pangs. So we need to be clear on this. What's evil is our love, is our craving for money. So when we think about if that's the problem, then we understand that the problem is not just a problem with people who have money. It's so easy to hear stories like this and say, well, you know, that's for those people that have money. No, when, when, the, when it's about the love of money or the craving for money, that affects everyone, whether you have money or whether you don't have money. And if you don't believe me... <clears throat> then just look at the lottery sales, right? That's why the lottery sales are as high as they are, is because people have a craving for money that they didn't earn. So Solomon's words are for all of us this morning. No matter how much money you have, no matter how much money you don't have, And like everything else throughout this book, he shows us how empty, how vain, how how it is just like chasing after the wind this love of money is. And there's a series of things that he shows us throughout this section. First, he shows us that the love of money produces blind spots. Look at verses 8 and 9 of chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 8 says, If you see in a province the opposition or excuse me, the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for that high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. Now this, as you read this, you're like, what in the world does this have to do with any of this? But let me just pull pull back the curtain just a little bit on this. When, when we understand and when we read what Scripture has to say about Solomon and, and his, all of his amazing works that he accomplished in Jerusalem, building the temple, building the city, building a kingdom that was the envy of the world, we understand that Solomon got a, just a ton of stuff done in Israel. But it wasn't like he lifted a finger to do any of it himself. Second Chronicles chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 says, 
Now Solomon purposed to build a temple for the name of the Lord and a royal palace for himself. And Solomon assigned, listen to this crew, Solomon assigned 70,000 men to bear burdens and 80,000 to quarry in the hill country to dig out stone. 80,000 men to do that and 3,600 men to oversee them. 70,000 to bear burdens, 80,000 to quarry in the hill country and 3,600 to oversee, to oversee them. I don't care where you come from, that's a lot of workers. That's a big workforce, isn't it? But let's just um, let's just be real. This wasn't like a hired workforce. We would probably be more accurate in saying that these were that this was slave labor. So what we have here in these couple of verses that we just read is is Solomon, the 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 boss of all of this crew. It's like he's giving them a little pep talk. He's he's telling them, he's saying, now don't forget that your boss has a boss. And don't forget that your boss, your boss's boss, has a boss over him. Don't worry about whether you're treated fairly or not. Just remember that everything that you're doing is for good. By the way, that good is my cultivated fields. Everything that you're doing is for my cultivated fields, which is for my career, which is for my advantage. It's like if, just picture like the Fortune 500, uh, the CEO of a Fortune 500 company uh, meeting with all of his line workers as he's making billions of dollars and they're making minimum wage. And he says, just remember that everything that you're doing is for the good of my wallet. And that's what we see here. See, what Solomon's love of money has done is it's left him blind to his own selfishness. He's, he's likening these cultivated fields as it is for their good, but it's not. It's for his good. It's caused a blind spot. It's left him blind to all those that he's climbed on to reach the top. Love of money can make you blind to your own selfishness. Love of money can make you blind to your own shortcuts. It can make you blind to your own stepping on people along the way. Love of money produces blind spots. It also produces dissatisfaction. Look at verses 10 through 12. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Why doesn't money bring satisfaction? I mean, we always think, right, if I had a little, just a little bit more money, man, I, I, could, I could chill. I wouldn't have to worry all the time. Why does money not bring satisfaction? The reason money doesn't bring satisfaction is because the more money you make, the more people have their hand out to take some of it. It's just a reality, isn't it? Listen to how the prophet Haggai puts it. In Haggai chapter 1, verses 5 through 6, he's prophesying the word of the Lord. He says, Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. 
You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. Does ever seem like the money that you're earning just goes through a hole in your pocket? <laughs> make, make more money so you can pay more taxes. Get a better house, get a bigger house so that you can pay more interest to the bank. Get, get a nicer car so that you gotta pay a bigger loan and bigger taxes. Get a better education so you can pay more student loans. It just seems like that the more you strive for, the more you end up paying out. Fees, taxes, interest, dues, subscriptions, bills, payments, like putting money into a wallet that has a big hole in the bottom of it. So you're left craving more money. So you can pay more bills with it. So you can crave more money. So you can pay more bills with it. You can't get no satisfaction. No, no, no. Hey, hey, hey. I know you were thinking it. Don't act like you weren't thinking it as we were going through there. The love of money produces dissatisfaction. It also produces fear. Look at verses 13 through 17. There is a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. And as he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all, the, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. Love of money produces fear. In verse 13, that word that's translated as, as kept, it carries the idea of, of grasping so that you can hold on to. We would probably liken it to somebody who's hoarding. Somebody holding something tightly, guarding it closely. What Solomon's doing here is he's telling the story of a hoarder. He's telling the story of somebody who hoards their stuff, who hoards their money. They pour all their capital into investments, and then their investments go south. That sure thing that they bet on, that sure venture that they bet on, it's not so it's not so sure anymore. And then all of a sudden they lose everything, and they leave the world just as broke as they entered it. And as he tells this story, you can feel the fear that's in his heart. What bondage to live in fear of losing it all? What bondage to be a slave to the whims of the market or the whims of the, the job market or the whims of, of whatever? What bondage to be a slave to those things? You know, you hear stories, um, you hear stories about those people who lived through the Great Depression. And, you know, my grandparents lived through the Great Depression, so, so the, the folks that they knew or other relatives that we had, there are stories like these that, um, that, that I distinctly remember. 
how these folks that went through the Great Depression swore that they would never be in that situation again. So they would, they would, whatever money that they would get, they would hoard it up in certain ways. And they'd live like paupers. And when they, when they finally, when they died, their family members, as they would go through their stuff, they would find tens of thousands of dollars sewn up in the hem of a, the hem of a dress or a jacket liner or even in mattress covers. You'd find tens of thousands of dollars sewn up in that. Or the stories of when people would bury money in mason jars in their yard and then forget where they buried them. And the stories of you know that there was money there and nobody knows where it is. The fear of losing everything, it leads to darkness, it leads to loneliness, it leads leads to anger, it even leads to sickness. All brought on by the love of money. The love of money produces blind spots, it produces dissatisfaction, it produces fear, it also produces resentment. Look at verses 18 through 20. Behold, what I've seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment. Boy, he's said that over and over through this book, hasn't he? Verse, continue in verse 18. In all the toil in which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Now once again, as you read that, you see some true things, some very true things that Solomon is saying there. But in every true thing that he says, it's incomplete. It starts as a true statement, but it's not the full truth of the statement. In other words, he's not telling the whole story. What he's saying is the best that that he can do with the wisdom that he has, which is only the wisdom that he has looking at things under the sun, that this is the best that he can do. Notice what he's saying saying here. Like I said, it's the same thing that he said over and over again. He's saying that the best that we can hope to do in this life is to eat and drink and work hard because that's all there is. And then he... <laughs> You ever, you ever seen in, in social media how people will subtweet stuff? You know, they'll just kind of try to get something underneath. And that's what he's doing here with his resentment. He, he says, he says it's a gift of God if you have the following. It's a gift of God if you have wealth and possessions. Well, check. He's got that in abundance. It's also a gift of God if you have the power to enjoy those. Well, all through this book, we've seen how dissatisfied and how how much longing he has to enjoy those things. So that one, not so much. He has the stuff, but he doesn't doesn't have the power. He doesn't have the gift of God to have the power to enjoy them. Except his lot. Remember how frustrated he's been trying to figure out all of those things. He's not content. He never has been. Rejoice in his toil. He's told us throughout the book how dissatisfied he's been with everything he's accomplished in his life. He's certainly not rejoicing. He has the wealth and possessions, but 
the power to enjoy them, the power to accept his lot, rejoicing in his toil. He doesn't have any of those, and he's saying that all of those things are coming as a gift from God. No, the only thing that he has on that list is wealth and possessions. And because he doesn't have those other things, he's resenting the fact that God has not given him the power to enjoy them, the contentment to accept his lot, the joy in his labor. And then his resentment just just boils over in verse 20 there. Even as he's looking back on how he's wasted his life chasing after the wind, he longs to be this fictional character who's so full of joy that he can't remember the past. The love of money produces resentment. Resenting the things that you could have had. Resenting the things that other people have. Resenting the life and the family and all of the time that you've wasted while you were chasing after the wind of chasing after money. It produces resentment. The love of money also produces joylessness. Look at chapter 6, the first six verses. There is an evil that I've seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It's a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun, this stillborn child has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the same place? There's no joy in money, there's no joy in craving it, there's no joy in hoarding Money under the sun, there is absolutely no joy in having it or spending it or passing it on. Because more always needs to be made and more always needs to be spent. And you're not going to be around if there's any to be passed on. You know, some of the ugliest fights that that I've ever seen as a pastor or really with anybody have been over the estate of a dead family member. Um, I've seen fights in front of the casket. Solomon says it's better to have never been born than to leave that kind of a legacy. Now once again, this doesn't have anything to do with how much money you have or how much money you don't have or how little you have. You can either be you can be a miserable millionaire just the same way as you can be a miserable miser. Joylessness knows absolutely no socioeconomic boundaries. Solomon had more money than Quakers got oats, but he said he wished that he that it would be have been better if he would have never been born. Jack Whitaker's now ex-wife told a reporter that she wished when she found that ticket, she was the one who went in and told her husband that he had the winning numbers. She's told reporters since then that she wished that when she found that ticket that she would have burned it. See, joy 
can't be bought or sold. The last thing that Solomon shows us is the love of money produces insatiable appetites. Look at verses 7 through 9. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool, and what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Now, when when Solomon says that all the toil of a man is for his mouth, he's not talking about just working so that he can feed himself. Food. He's not saying that he was eating everything that he earned, but what he was saying is that he was spending all of his money, all of his efforts, all of his vast wealth just feeding his physical and emotional and mental appetites. See, those appetites are never satiated. They're never, they're never satisfied. You know the old quote from uh, from Rockefeller. Rockefeller was the, the richest man in the world at the time that he lived. And some reporter asked him somewhere what his favorite million that he ever had was. You know what his answer was? The next one. Tom Brady. And I, I just I shouldn't even use language like that in the church, right? Um, <laughs> But but Tom Tom Brady is his quarterback of the New England Patriots. He's won six Super Bowls. That's more Super Bowls than any player in NFL history. And when somebody asked him, and this was shortly after one of his Super Bowl victories, they were interviewing him and they asked him, they said, What what is your favorite Super Bowl victory? He said, The next one. Now that might make for a really good football player. But what a miserable life. Appetites only grow. The appetite for money and the things that money can buy only grows. Money can buy vacations, right? Oh, but the next one's always got to be better. Money can buy a house, but there's always one better, or there's always something better that needs to be done to that house. Money can buy a car. But there's always a newer, or a faster, or a better, or a bigger one. Money can buy all kinds of stuff, but under the sun, the stuff is never enough to satisfy. It's enough to build an appetite, but there's no amount of it that's ever enough to satisfy that appetite. Every single one of us in here has said at one time or another, If I just had a little more money, I could. Now you fill in the blank with what it is, but every single one of us has said that. The reality is that appetite will never be satisfied by the craving and the love of money. So there we have it. This was, this was Solomon. This was one of the richest men Whoever lived looking back as an old man looking back at the emptiness of loving and craving all of that money that he had. With all that he had, with all that he owned, he realized that he had spent his life chasing the wind. So where does that leave us this morning? 
It leaves us not striving for the wind like He was. It leaves us looking for a much better way. And that better way is to live with money instead of living for money. Amen? That better way is to love God and to use money, not the other way around. So in order to make that happen, there are four things that you need to get right. There are four things that we need to get right here this morning. The first thing that we need to get right is you need to trust Jesus. See, until you've trusted Jesus as Lord and Master and Savior and not just checked off some box like He's fire insurance, until you've learned to trust Him as your Lord, as your King, as your Master, as your Savior, it doesn't matter what else you think you might be getting right. See, Solomon tried doing things his own way. He tried doing things the under-the-sun way. But you see where that brought him, right? Looking back as the whole thing had been wasted. Oh, don't let that be you this morning. Don't let that be you to sit one day and look back on your life like you've wasted the whole thing. Trust Jesus, not just to not just to save you, not just to give you a place in heaven. Trust Him to rule your life as King and Master and Lord. Trust Him with your life. Trust Him with your job. Trust Him with your family. Trust Him with your time. Trust Him with your money. Trust Him with everything you are. Trust Him with everything you hope to be. Trust Jesus. Second, you need to give generously. See, when you trust Jesus as Lord of everything, then you realize that everything that you have is just stuff that He's given you, that He's entrusted you with. And the only reason that God has given you any financial blessing that He's given you is in order that you might be a blessing to others. God blesses us that we might be a blessing to others. A good way to start is with the biblical principle of a tithe. A tithe is 10% of your income. If you want to get in debates of whether that's before taxes or whatever, just start with a tithe. Tithe income to the local church that you're part of. Now, something that, um, as I say that, I know that there are so many scams and shams and all that kind of stuff that's out there that people are automatically skeptical. So just a just a quick reminder of who we are as a church. When you give money to this church, you can rest assured that whatever money that you give to this church is spent for kingdom purposes. All of our finances are completely transparent. Our budget is set by our membership. It's not set by me. And copies of our budget are available to everybody. Whether you're a member or whether you're a guest, copies of our budget are available to everyone. On top of that, every month at our business meeting, we have a full accounting of everything that has been spent in the church. So everything is transparent. There's no secrets here. And because there's no secrets here, then there are no excuses, right? So give generously by giving your tithe. Give generously by giving over and above your tithe to the special offerings. Like, you know, we're in the middle of, or at the end of global hunger relief. We've got Lottie Moon uh, for our international missions coming. Those are special offerings, so give generously by giving over and above to those things. Give generously to other causes. 
And just a word of caution, when you give generously to other causes, make sure that what you're giving to is what they say that you're giving to. Make sure that they're transparent in those things. Make sure you're not getting scammed. So give generously. Third, save wisely. Save wisely. You know, there's a huge difference between saving and hoarding, right? There's a huge difference between the two. Saving is being wise. It's far better... um, It's far better to drive a piece of junk around while you wait to save for another car than it is to buy the fancy car first and end up in a six-year loan where you're underwater as soon as you drive it off the lot. It's far better for you to save for your kids' and your grandkids' education than it is to strap them with thousands of dollars of student loans. It's far better to put away at least six months of living expenses as an emergency fund than it is to have to whip out the credit card every time that the water heater breaks or the plumbing clogs or the million other things that happen. It's far better to save for those things first. And it's far better to save for retirement than it is to be a burden to your, be a financial burden to your kids or to your community. So there's a difference between saving and hoarding. Saving is a biblical principle. It's a wise thing to do. Hoarding, holding on to your money in a greedy way so that you can just feed your appetites with it, that's a whole different thing. Finally, live appropriately. Living appropriately um, is understanding the difference between needs and wants. And that's a hard lesson to learn, isn't it? And you know, the I need, I want, I gotta have. Learn the difference between the things that you gotta have now and the things that can wait till later. See, just because it's available or just because it's on sale, you've gotta, there's a whole marketing system out there that is based on fear of loss. Right? I was ordering some books on are looking through some books on on Amazon the other day, and sure enough, there was one that said it only had one left in stock. So guess which one I ordered, even though I didn't have money in my book fund. <laughs> that one that I thought that I was I was going to lose. See, just because it's available or just because it's on sale doesn't mean it's necessary. And just because it's necessary doesn't mean that it's necessary right now. The appetite for new things, the appetite for better things, the appetite for the new phone, for the new whatever, can be insatiable. And just because you get it doesn't mean that you're not going to automatically want the next one. Live within your means and not your desires. You want to be rescued from... The blind spots, the dissatisfaction, the fear, the resentment, the joylessness, the insatiable appetites that are produced by the love, the craving, the love of money. You want to be rescued from those? Then give generously. Save wisely. Live appropriately. And above all, and before all, trust Jesus with all that you are, with all that you have, and with all that you ever, that you ever think you're going to have.
trust Jesus. 